from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture reading comes from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. Listen now for a word from God. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their, trans their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. second text comes from the Gospel of Mark, the seventh chapter, verses 24 through 30, page 40 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along as I read. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him. She came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Seraphonician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this morning so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
with two weeks left in our couple-month-long sermon series entitled Human Desire, Divine Intention, we turn our focus to the God-given, God-designed desire to be at peace. Part of what it means to be a human being is to know this desire, is to possess this desire to be at peace. Uh, the word for peace in the Hebrew Bible is a word familiar to many of you, I'm sure. It's the word shalom. And shalom means so much more than the absence of conflict or the absence of war. Shalom is about completeness. Shalom is about wholeness. To experience shalom is to experience an all-inclusive, all-encompassing harmony in our lives. One of the places that the Hebrew Bible talks about shalom is in the story of King Solomon's quest to build the temple. Remember, the temple held a place of distinction in the religious imagination of the people of God. It was literally God's house. That's where God lived. That's where God dwelt. And it was King David's son, Solomon, who took up the task to finance and to oversee the construction of the first temple in Jerusalem. In 1 Kings 9, we actually hear the story of the completion of the temple, and it's in verse 25 of that chapter that it literally says, Hebrew to English literally says, Solomon shalomed the temple. Solomon shalomed the the temple. Shalom in this context is used as a verb. Solomon shalomed, Solomon completed, Solomon made whole the temple. Friends, at the heart of the Christian gospel is the confession that Jesus sought and seeks to shalom us. To shalom us and to Shalom the world. Jesus seeks to complete us. Jesus seeks to make us whole. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he is hailed at his birth as the one to bring peace. He is the prince of shalom. He is the prince of peace. Jesus said it to his disciples, to his followers, that I have come to bring you shalom. I have come to bring you peace. Paul, in his writings, talks about Jesus as our peace. In the text that Chris read for us, we hear about the ministry of this peace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are invited into the ministry of reconciliation, which is another way to talk about the ministry of peace. See, etched in the human heart, I believe, is a desire for us to be shalomed. There's a desire for us to experience a reconciled, harmonious existence. We have the desire to be made whole. We have the desire to be complete, to be at peace. We have the desire to find harmony with God, to find harmony with creation, to find harmony with our fellow human beings, and to find harmony and peace within our own lives, within ourselves. And yet, each one of us knows full well that the realization of shalom can feel very elusive. The realization and experiences of peace and harmony can feel far off from us. Even now, some of us 
come into this sacred space deeply conflicted in one way or another, feeling very far from harmony, feeling very far from peace. We know what incompleteness feels like in our relationship with God. Perhaps we know what division and discord and separation looks like in our relationship with other people. We know conflict and we know strife in these days in various forms across our globe and within our social existence. Political polarization in our nation is at a high. Conflict abounds. Peace often feels far off. We are well aware and we are not naive to the fact that shalom, that peace, is hard to attain. It's hard to attain. I mean, just think about St. Francis of Assisi's prayer, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Many of us uh, grew up learning this prayer, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. And all the things that that St. Francis talks about, the things that make for peace are things that we don't easily choose. In fact, it's so much easier, I think, to choose the opposite as as St. Francis goes back and forth between these dynamics. He, He reminds us in some ways that that it's easier for us to sow hatred, to sow injury, to sow doubt, to sow despair and and darkness and sadness. And the things that make for peace, the things that make for peace in our lives and in the life of the world are, are so hard sometimes to attain. Love and pardon, faith, hope, light and joy, these things that make for peace are not what we often first choose. Here's what I'm really trying to communicate in this opening part of the sermon, is that peace is difficult. Peace is hard. Peace takes work. Peace is realized on the road less traveled. It's like Solomon shaloming the temple, the great marvel and feat of building the temple in ancient Israel. It takes work and courage to compete, complete rather such a task. It takes fortitude. And I think the same is true as we're trying to participate in God's shalom in our own lives and in the life of the world. It's hard, hard work. I had an impactful and powerful conversation with a member of uh, this church during the week, um, she was feeling called to set out on a quest. And, and this particular quest, in many ways, followed in the footsteps of Jesus as she went out to California and was going to spend time in the Mendocino uh, wilderness. She took up this quest as I asked her what was motivating her to do this. She said she had some things in her life that were unresolved. There were some internal spiritual work and conflict that needed to be addressed if she was going to realize full peace. So her spiritual director created and and guided her work and she set out into the forest with a few changes of clothes, an air mattress, a sleeping bag, her journal, and four gallons of water. No food, no companionship, No shelter, no phone, no technology for four days and four nights. And as she was describing this quest, it dawned on me of how this is a metaphor for our quests for peace 
for our quests for harmony because that road sometimes leaves us hungry. That road sometimes leaves us thirsty. That road sometimes leads us, uh, leaves us rather exposed to pursue peace, to work for shalom is hard, hard work. It takes sacrifice. Jesus modeled this sacrifice for us in his own life as he gave himself over to be our peace. This is not cheap grace. As God worked in and through Christ to accomplish our reconciliation, this is not easy work. Friends, if we're going to make peace with God, if we're going to make peace with each other, if we're going to make peace with creation, if we're going to make peace with ourselves, it's going to take effort. It's going to take courage and fortitude. It's not an easy road. And it's here that I think we have to face one of the hard truths of our lives. Even though we're God-designed to be at peace, even though God has put this longing into the depths of our hearts to long for harmony, to long for reconciliation, so often we prefer not to pursue it because it is so difficult. Because we know what the road looks like to peace. So we avoid that wilderness. We avoid the quest that leads to harmony. We, we've held on far too long to our grudges because it's really hard to forgive. We become bitter because the wounds are too hard to heal. We become apathetic because the achievement of justice seems like wishful thinking. And so what we do is we become an observer of life. This is what begins to happen in this desire for peace. We begin to just simply observe life and not fully participate in it. We're on the brink of the World Series. I'm sorry the Braves are not in it. Sincerely, I am. And I was thinking about baseball and I remembered a story from the pen of Al Andrews, an author and a speaker who describes his very first Little League experience. As an eight-year-old during that first game, he was so eager to come to the plate. He was so eager to bat. And yet the first game, he had four plate appearances and four strikeouts, all swinging. He couldn't make contact with the ball. Next game, same thing happens. Four plate appearances, four swinging strikeouts. By the third game, he was pressing, wanting so badly to have the cheers and adulation come to him as he would get a hit and get on base and perhaps even score. He watched his friends who were getting hits. He watched his friends who were scoring runs, knocking in runs, and he wanted so desperately to experience that. But in those first two at-bats, he struck out swinging. After those two strikeouts, he began to notice that some of his teammates who didn't swing were still getting on base. You know, because eight-year-old pitchers don't have the best control. They were getting walked. And some of them were even scoring runs. So Al made a decision in that moment, in that third game, during his third at-bat, he was not going to swing for the rest of the season. <laughs> and he didn't. Not one time did he take the bat off his shoulders. 
And he did strike out looking more times than not, but occasionally he got on base. And sometimes he even scored. Andrews penned this personal comment about that experience. He says, that story is a sadly fitting metaphor for how I lived much of my life. For many years, even as an adult, I made the commitment not to swing the bat. It was a picture of my life, a man standing still, afraid to move, refusing to move, holding back because of a greater and prior commitment to safety, whether in vocation, in relationships, or in the responsibilities of daily life. Friends, when we show up in the world with the bat on our shoulders, committed not to swing, when we show up as an observer, not a participant, our desire to be at peace actually becomes distorted. We've been talking about how these desires can become disordered in our life. And what happens with this desire to be at peace is that we become slothful. We become lazy. We begin to think that we have no power. We begin to lose our voice. We lose our desire to be a self-advocate. We avoid conflict at all costs because we don't want to sacrifice the little peace that we actually have. We become desperately afraid of change. We lose our passion and our commitment to make our lives better and the lives of others better better, we check out emotionally and spiritually and politically and, and we let our dreams dry up and our convictions crumble. We become unaware and uninvolved and keep our distance and refuse to risk and refuse to work and refuse to strive for the thing we want so desperately, which is peace, which is shalom, which is atonement, hoping that it will just happen. The Seraphonician woman, the person we meet in Mark 7, I think is one of the gutsiest characters in the Bible. She is the antithesis of what I've just described. She's no wallflower, and she's on her own wilderness quest for peace. Now, Mark tells us that Jesus was on a little quest of his own. We can read into it a little bit and perhaps come to the conclusion that he's on a little vacation, that he's experiencing a little R&R. He goes to Tyre, that region which is toward the north of Israel, toward Lebanon and Syria on the coastline, a place that you can imagine Jesus would spend a little vacation time. I remember that place from Old Testament 101 when we were doing the geography test. I remembered Tyre and I remember Tyra Banks being on the water. I got that question right on the exam. So this is a lovely place, it's a beautiful place. And Mark subtly tells us that Jesus doesn't wanna be noticed. But as it often happens, when he comes to town, word gets out that this famous rabbi is here and this Gentile woman knows that she has to meet him. Her daughter, her beloved child is possessed by a demon, and she's sure that Jesus can bring peace. She's sure that he can bring wholeness to both mother and child. 
Of course, this scene would have been an affront. It would have raised the ire of any observant Jew of the day. A Gentile woman coming into this home and coming to Jesus' feet, invading the personal space of this well-regarded rabbi. Hardly a proper scene. She falls at his feet, pleads with him to heal her daughter, and then Jesus says one of the most un-Jesus things that we have in the New Testament. He says, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Now, most scholars will, will tell you that the children Jesus is referring to, those children are the house of Israel, and the dogs are the Gentiles of which this woman is one. Some commentators say you can imagine in our own slang and in our own crudeness what Jesus is actually saying to this woman. Hardly the charitable Jesus we're used to picturing in our heads. Even worse, it seems that Jesus is leveraging gender, religious, and ethnic differences of the time in the harshest of ways to speak to this woman. Maybe he was hangry. Maybe he was upset that she was interrupting his vacation. I don't know. We don't know what Jesus' intent was when he spoke these harsh words to this woman, whether we should take them at face value or that the, if there's some sort of deeper secret meaning to them. We simply do not know. We have to be okay I think, with our ignorance. But we do know this. The woman persists. The woman persists. She is after peace. She is after wholeness. She is after healing. She finds her courage and she finds her voice and she responds to Jesus not clapping back, but certainly coming back, saying, sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And it just might be here that we find the most radical aspect of this whole interaction. Jesus does not respond in the way that maybe a rabbi would have been expected to respond to this woman talking back to this man of prominence. Jesus said, for saying that. Did you hear how I read it when I read it? I said, for saying that, I'm going to get you out of here. I'm going to have some men throw stones at you. I'm going to cast you out of the community. For saying that, that's what we might imagine that Jesus or any rabbi would say in this context, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, for saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter, and her daughter, Mark says, was healed. Jesus didn't rebuke her. Jesus didn't cast her aside. Jesus didn't call for violence against her. Jesus responded to her desire to take the bat off her shoulders and swing for the fences. See, when we think about our call to the ministry of peace, to the ministry of reconciliation, when we think about our individual and corporate quest for peace, I'd invite us all to find our voice to find our courage. Perhaps things are not right between you and God. Only you know that coming into this space this morning. Perhaps it's time to go to work. 
Perhaps it's time to embark on a quest to put in the work of worship and prayer and and scripture reading and and self-denial and community life. Perhaps you feel as if demons are lurking around your life at every turn, and now is the time to put in the work of pleading and prayer, asking Jesus to come in and bring the healing and peace that you desire. Perhaps there are wounds in your life too deep for you to think that they could ever be resolved. Find your voice, find your courage to call the therapist finally, or to call the pastor, or to call a trusted friend. Perhaps you're finally ready to engage politically and communally to become more active in the systems that can really make for peace and can promote the common good instead of just complaining about it all the time. Perhaps you've been withholding forgiveness from yourself or you've been withholding forgiveness from someone else. Put in the work that will eventually unburden you and bring you reconciliation. Perhaps you have known for a long time that a change needs to happen in your life if the fullness of life is going to be known. Work for that change, pursue that change. You know it to be true in your own life. What are the things that will make for peace? Go after them, go down that wilderness road. Jesus has accomplished the ministry of reconciliation, friends, and he invites us to participate in it. But let us be very clear that this work is hard. It's hard work. And yet it is work that is so good. Work to which we have been called. Work that says we ought to shalom the heck out of our lives. Work that says we ought to shalom the heck out of this church. Work that says we should shalom this city, this nation, and this world. And friends, look, there will be hunger. There will be thirst on this journey. You will be exposed. You will be vulnerable. There will be obstacles to face. There will be waves that capsize us. The losses will come. The risks will be great. The truth we have to tell will be hard. But the promise of God is this, that peace will come. Shalom is ours. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Amen.